chapter 11, Genesis 11. You might be saying, I thought we were in Romans. Well, we're going to take a little break, two-week break from Romans, and I'll be in Genesis 11 this week. We're going to do something different than Romans. It's not an epistle. It's not by Paul. It's back in the Old Testament. It's a narrative. It's a story. So turn with me there, Genesis 11. And as you're turning there, I start with a confession. I kind of like cars. I I never considered myself a gearhead or anything, but uh, just even in the recent couple years, learning how cars work, it's interesting. I like how they're designed. I, I don't know. I have something about it. So when my wife and I started discussing the fact that our family needed an updated car, my brain started scheming. I started thinking, this is the chance for me to get the car of my dreams that's also practical for the family. And then I realized that was never going to happen. But then I remembered the Jeep Commander. I love Jeeps. I've always loved Jeeps. And I thought, okay, well, let me, let me look into these cars. And I do a lot of research, ask my wife a lot of research, way too much. And I find out everything there is to know about them. I, finally, the day comes for us to go test drive one. And we do that. And that was the day my dreams for a Jeep died. Yeah, we took that thing out. We looked at it. We, you know, we've been used to a minivan. So there's a lot of space in a minivan. And we both kind of came to the conclusion our kids may kill each other. In this car, we, we, we need to go back to a minivan. And so that's what we did. And there's no shame in that, okay? But we all have dreams. We all have ideas. We even have schemings. What happens when those dreams don't work out like we want them to? How do we respond when God says, I got a different plan for you. I got something else that I'm doing, often much more important than even the car that we drive. How we pursue our goals, how we pursue our dreams is very important. And just as important is how we respond when our dreams are dashed. How do we respond to that? At the heart of it is really this battle between what God wants me, for me and what I want for me. God's plan for me and my plan. It's the age-old struggle of autonomy. A struggle that we all feel deep down inside of us and I know that it's true. And I know that it's true because just about every Disney movie I've ever seen has this struggle for autonomy. And I don't think the world really thinks about it this way. They're not thinking uh, about it in this exact phrase. But there's what's expected of us and what we want to do. Take the Little Mermaid. Wish I could be part of their world. Or Tangle, that's one of my girl's favorites. Tomorrow night the lights will appear just like they do on my birthday each year. These are all songs, by the way. I'm not singing them. What is it like out there where they glow? Now that I'm older, mother might just let me go. Or Moana. It's a more recent one. Every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, every road leads back to the place I know, where I cannot go, where I long to be. Pinocchio just wants to be a real boy. And Simba just can't wait to be king. And there's this longing, this yearning for autonomy, to do what I want to do. And either it's my parents or society or whatever won't let me do it. And for us, we know that there's this battle between what God wants for me and what I want for me. And we see that battle in Genesis 11 here. 
And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 with you. So follow along. Genesis 11. It's, this is a story that a lot of you know, the Tower of Babel. Hopefully we look at it today and maybe we see a few new things. And God uses it in our hearts. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Here's what God's word says. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Before we jump into understanding the meaning of this text, I just want to point out for a moment, it's a really beautiful passage of Scripture. And if you allow me to just geek out for a moment, okay, I do love when I see this beauty in Scripture, stuff that I don't really know until I study it, until I really get in depth with it. You're going to see on the screen the parts of the text, and it's, it's arranged in this way, and this is called... Uh, symmetry, and, and actually this type of, of chiasm is called polystrophy. And what that is, is that means for an extended period, there's this stepping out and then this reversal. So just look at the A, the top and the bottom. Verse 1, verse 9, there's similarities there, right? Phrases that are used. B, you kind of work your way there. G is right in the middle there, and that's the moment in which the Lord intervenes and everything changes. So there's this reversal. I find that to be so cool. I know it's kind of a Bible nerd thing, but here's the thing about Scripture. You study it and you read it throughout your whole life and you learn new things. How many times have I read the, the, the Tower of Babel and I did not notice that? But what God's doing is he's, he's given us a diamond of the Word of God. And every time we turn it, we see a different facet of it. I could, I could point to word plays in here and there's different literary devices. It's just a really beautiful passage of Scripture. But it's not just beautiful. It resonates with our heart because we are not that different from the people of Babel. We're not that different. First, this morning, we like our plans better than God's. We like our plans better than God's plans. Perhaps you've read this story before and you said, what's the big deal? I mean, they're building a tower. Is God against architecture? Is he against culture? Is he against building? The, the story kind of offends our American sensibilities. It irritates our entrepreneurial spirit. What's going on, God? What's, what's the problem? And, and why is it such a big deal that they want to make a name for themselves? Every one of us wants to leave a legacy. Are we that different? Why is God upset with them? Well, to understand the gravity, we need to look at Genesis 11 in its context. Let's get a little bit of context. What's happening so you can jump back to chapter 2 and you can glance at that with me and just notice it's this, um, this list of names. Okay, it's this list of here's what God is doing after Noah. 
After the flood, here's all the people and the family tree and, and how people spread throughout the earth. So Genesis 11 is not actually chronologically after Genesis 10. Rather, Genesis 11 is somewhere in Genesis 10. As Noah's family starts to build Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, that happens. And then after Genesis 11, 1 through 9, then we see all these people spreading throughout the earth. So understand that in its context. Also, it's important to know how does this story of the Tower of Babel connect with creation? And a careful reader of Genesis 11, 1 through 9 will hear echoes of creation. As you look at the text, you hear things like, let us... That divine plural where in Genesis God says, let us make man in our own image. And here he says, let us go down and confuse their language. You also see this struggle, Eve desiring to be like God in the Genesis creation account. And here we have the people of Babel wanting to be like God, wanting to reach the heavens. You have, to, you have other things too, like expulsion from the garden, expulsion from Babel. So there's, there's some echoes here. Can you hear them? We're reminded of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so creation gives us a backdrop. We have to think about that. From the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then after he created the heavens and the earth, he gives this commandment to his people, to Adam and Eve and their children. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and care for creation So understand the Tower of Babel is in that context. That this is what humanity is supposed to do. Go out into all the places of the world and fill the earth. Of course, we remember what happened in Genesis 3. Yes, God created the heavens and the earth. He created them perfect. But then the serpent tempts Eve. and She takes of the fruit and Adam eats the fruit too. And sin enters the world and creation is marred. And then creation becomes so sinful, the Bible says, that God sends a flood, a worldwide flood, and he starts over. And then Noah's descendants start to build, and then you have this story of the Tower of Babel. But understand it in that context. Get the the idea that God has said to people, go out into all the world and fill the earth and multiply and show my image everywhere so that every person in every nook and cranny of the world knows who I am. That's God's desire for humanity. So we look at this text and we see what the people are doing and we start to understand that there's actually sin behind it. In verse 4 of what we just read, they are making a name for ourselves, themselves. And if you were to read just one chapter later in Genesis, you'll see that what does God say to Abraham? I will make of you a great name. I'm going to make a great name of you, Abraham. So God wants to make a great name for his people. He wants to do it. He will do it. But these people are saying, we'll make a great name for ourselves. So know it in that context. This is what's going on. This is why it's such a problem. Here's the point. Sometimes what seems to be spirited ambition is in reality stubborn rebellion. I want you to think about that for a moment. Especially if you're a young person, if you're a teen or a young adult, you got your whole life ahead of you, right? And you're, you're planning these big things and you got dreams. And maybe they're even good dreams. They're dreams about what you believe God wants you to do with your life. Or you just got married and you have these dreams about what your family's going to be like, how God's going to use you. And you have all of these plans, but sometimes we don't stop and we don't think, what does God want for me? 
is this plan, is this dream in concert with what he wants? Or could I actually be in rebellion subconsciously or even knowingly? No matter what our age, we all have dreams. We all have endeavors. They could be as silly as a car or it could be much more significant about who we're going to marry or what career I'm going to have or if we're already in a career, how I'm going to advance in that career. Today, I'm hoping we stop and say, what does God want for me? How long has it been since I've thought of that? And I want to give you a few reasons why our plans we like better than God's. Why do we like our plans better than God's plans? Well, here are three C's. They're not up on the screen, but you can jot them down if you want. Pretty easy to remember. First, we like comfort. We like comfort. God is calling these descendants of Noah to spread out, to go into the far places of the earth and to cultivate creation, to reflect his image everywhere. But going new places is not that comfortable. It seems that these people from Babel are done with discomfort. Look at verse 3. They have already migrated from the east. I guess, no, verse 2 actually. They've migrated from the east. They've already come, away, come a long way. And now they say, that's enough. I'm done with migrating. I can kind of identify a little bit with these people of Babel. I recently migrated from the east myself. And it's uncomfortable to go to new places. It's, it's, it's different. It's not what we're used to. As human beings, we like convenience. Anyone like convenience in here? Raise your hand. Some of you are honest. I think we all like some conveniences. Maybe there's certain ones you like, certain ones you don't care about. I personally like to be near a modern city, like a big city. If I'm not somewhat close to a big city where I can get to in a day, I start to feel a little squirrely. Because I, I like the culture of a city. I, I like there's different ethnicities and different foods and just it feels nice for me. Now living in Cedar Lake, I, I feel like I'm on, right on the edge of Chicagoland. Like the very edge. <laughs> right? We have, you know, Hammond and you come down to Highland and Shearville and St. John and Cedar Lake. And then it's, some of you are from Lowell and, and from DeMott. You're like, what are you talking about? There's all kinds of stuff down there. I don't know. I'm just telling you how I feel, okay? This is how I feel. And I started to think to myself, what if God would have called me to the very middle of Indiana, which is the picture in my head when Pastor Steve called me. Indiana? What if God called me to the middle of Indiana? Or he said, I want you to keep migrating to Nebraska or somewhere even further deeper into the Midwest where the ocean's even further away. Would I have obeyed? You know, it's, it's easy to hear the call of God when it's somewhere glamorous. Another reason we like our plan more than God's is because we like control. We like comfort. We like control. And these people in Babel, they are knowing. They, it says in the text that they don't want to be dispersed. There's a fear of if they go out there, they don't know what's out there. There's a, there's a lack of control. But see, if we stay here and if we build this city and we make this an awesome place to live, we know what that is. They like control. We like control. And also conceit. That's a third C there. God's way requires selflessness. And the people of Babel, they're more concerned about their glory. They're, they're more concerned about advancing their name than they are the name of, of God. I want to share an illustration with you of a young man that I believe struggled with all three of these. And was trying to decide, do I want to go God's way or do I want to go my way? Before I left Bethlehem, I was able to be a chaplain for a college wrestling team. And there was this young man 
very successful wrestler. I mean, as in the, in the finals of the NCAA, successful. A very, very gifted wrestler at a prestigious university, has an internship waiting at a very good company, dating a great girl. He's a Christian young man, by the way. And he started to talk to me about his recent decision and how he decided to get a new apartment and move in with his girlfriend and how everyone else was so excited for him and he was asking me about it and I shared with him what scripture taught. I I shared what the Bible says about sex outside of marriage and about purity and all of that. And he he said to me, "I, I know that that's right. Like I feel that it's not right what I'm doing, but I just can't not do it. I, I can't do anything different than what I'm doing. And so he's, he's battling with control and with, and with conceit about, about his own glory versus God's and comfort. It would be very uncomfortable to reverse what they've already done. And, and we all, to some degree, struggle with this idea of going outside what we're comfortable with, what we can control, wanting God's glory more than our glory. And the reason that we like our plans better than we like God's plans, if we're brutally honest, is because sometimes we love ourselves more than we love God. We say we love God, we sing that we love God here, and we worship Him and all that, but really we love ourselves more than we love God, and that's why we love our plans more than we love God's plans. Now, I I know that that hurts a little bit, but I say it to myself too. So we like our plans better than God's plans, and if our plans succeed we will destroy ourselves. This is an interesting aspect of the Tower of Babel. I want you to consider. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And then he says, Come, let us go down and mix up their language. Now some have read this account and they've thought, Maybe God's getting nervous, like humans are going to get too powerful for him, and he's, he, he's kind of worried about that, and so it's kind of like in the garden when, when the serpent tells Eve, God knows that if you eat of the fruit, you're going to be like him, as if God is, again, nervous about human beings, and he feels threatened, as if God is threatened by our puny attempts. Our rebellion is infantile when you look at it in context. It is not that God is threatened by human beings. It's that God knows that too much power in the hands of a sinner is a very dangerous thing. God knows this. God knows that when we as sinners continue to strengthen and continue to become powerful apart from him, it's a very bad thing. And we use this phrase. We say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It should be noted that the residents of Babel are fulfilling one aspect of the creation mandate. They are doing something that God told them, and that is building, and that is culture, and that is uh, having dominion over the earth. Architecture, city building, that's, that's part of it. But they're doing it with the wrong motives. They're not doing it in the way that glorifies God. They're doing it for their own glory, to make a name for themselves. They're doing it in a way that they are avoiding what God told them to do to go out, to be scattered. So God knows their motives, and they know their motives. Perhaps it's family folklore by this point, you know, generations removed, but they know what they're supposed to do, and they know they're supposed to spread throughout all the earth. Rather, they say, nah, this is far enough. This is where I'm planting my flag, and this is where we're going to live. So they systematically build this grand 
tower. And it's coming together. It's probably looking amazing. Like that new uh, Ileana building down there by Shoe Corner. It's coming together. I don't know what it looks like inside. Outside it looks pretty awesome. Right? It's coming together. And so the project at Babel, it's coming together. But then in verse 5, we have this divine building inspection. How many of you like building inspectors? Anyone love building inspectors? No hands? Is anyone a building inspector here? <laughs> I'm just asking. You can admit it if you are. There's something about, you know, somebody coming through and checking off all the things that are wrong, and I'm going to have to fix that, I'm going to have to do that, and no one really likes building inspectors, probably except building inspectors themselves or those that are married to them. I don't know. Can you imagine if the building inspector not only looked at the quality of your work, but also at your motives in building it? What are you going to use that for? (laughs) What's your heart motive as you're building that? Because that's what we have in Genesis 11. We have God, the building inspector, coming and saying, oh, the building looks good. But I know why you're doing this. You're doing this because you don't want to obey me. You're doing this for yourselves rather than for me. Did you notice that the text says he came down to see? God in heaven, he came down to see. Why that language? You know, why, why would God phrase it that way? Some have said, well, perhaps God is limited. Like he can't see what's happening on earth. His vantage point is, you know, somewhat obstructed. So he's got to come down and see What's going on? He most certainly can see everything on earth. There are plenty of scriptures we could point to that he knows everything that's happening. In fact, he knows our hearts. He knows the hearts of the builders of Babel. But what God is doing here is is, uh, he's using in this text poetic, illustrative language to help us understand that for all of the attempts of these humans, for all of the attempts to build this tower high and to make it to heaven, Apparently they didn't get too high because it could barely be seen from heaven. What they thought was so big and so grand, God can hardly see. It's really sarcasm. God is using sarcasm in this text, the literary brush of sarcasm. God's saying, you think you're really powerful? You think you've gotten up here real high? I can barely see it. i got to come down to you. The tower which man thought reached to heaven, God can hardly see. It is, as Gordon Wenham says, a brilliant and dramatic way of expressing the puniness of man's greatest achievements when set alongside the Creator's omnipotence. And yet, though man's attempts were puny compared to God, they still are possible of creating quite a bit of damage. These people are going to create damage, and so God steps in. In verse 6, God says, this is the only beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So herein lies another lesson from Babel. And that is the the more we resist God's plan, the more we decide to do what we want to do, and and the stronger we become, and the longer that happens, the more damage we're going to do. The more that we're going to hurt ourselves, the more we're going to hurt others. God sees Babel and he knows what's coming. It's like deja vu all over again before the flood, right? Mankind becoming more wicked, becoming more powerful to the point in which God had to restart. If sinful mankind continues to advance and invent and build while they're sinfully following their own way, they will destroy themselves. And so God says, I will never do what I did before. Remember the covenant that God made after the flood, after he does this hard reset of the earth. 
God says, I will never again do that. I will never again eliminate the entire earth. I will never allow human beings to become so wicked that they are unredeemable. And he, he promises us that. And he shows that promise by painting a rainbow in the sky. And that's supposed to be a sign of the covenant. The commitment that God has that I will always redeem this earth. I will always redeem the people of this earth. So the rainbow is a symbol of that commitment and the Tower of Babel is a real life example of his commitment to that. He steps in. He says, I'm not going to let people become as wicked as they could be. Instead, I'm going to change things up here. I'm going to destroy their plans. When you read through the Old Testament, there is a danger of reading accounts like this, like the flood, like the Tower of Babel, and thinking, man, God is he's kind of harsh. He's kind of mean, especially in the Old Testament. What, why does he do these kind of things? But it's not really that way. We've misunderstood God. See, God is a God who knows what's best for society. He knows what's best for humanity. He knows that the best thing for us as people is for his fame, for his glory to be spread throughout the whole earth. For his people to take him all throughout the earth. That's what God wants for us. He knows that the, the, the bigger that Christ becomes in my heart and in, in, in our neighborhood and in our world, the better off we as humans are. On the other side, the more we focus on ourselves, the more we fixate on what we want, our plans, our glory, the worse off we are. We may think we know what we want, but in reality, we're bringing upon ourselves destruction. So that's why the answer to our problems is not more self-esteem. It's not feeling better about myself. The answer for our problem is to see more of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ to go out throughout Cedar Lake in this whole area and be shown everywhere. For us to spread that far and wide. For the, for the glory of Jesus Christ to go throughout the world, throughout every known people group. That's the best thing. And God knew here that's what he needed to do. It was not best for people to, to live in one location and make a name for themselves. Praise God that if we are his people, he does not allow us to neurotically obsess about ourselves, to focus on only what we want. He will step in and he will destroy our plans. And some of you have been there. We could probably have testimony after testimony in this room. Of some of you who have had these plans, these dreams, and they got crushed. Maybe you had plans for your family and they did not work out as you thought that they would. Or you have plans to, for this job or this house or whatever and it all fell apart and you're sitting there saying, why God? Like why are you letting all of this happen? And at that moment, in that mixture of, of anger and, and confusion, rather than looking at God and, and saying, God, I'm angry at you. God, why would you do this? We have to remember that he is good. That God is Good, and sometimes he allows things to crash and burn so that Jesus is more precious to us. So that the things that we love so much, we see them in comparison to Jesus Christ. And we realize that he is all I have right now. He is more precious. He is more beautiful. And so God steps in, and sometimes he ruins our plans. God loves us enough to ruin our plans. I want to propose this question to you. I want you to think about it. You don't need to raise your hand or answer out loud, but here's the question. If we try to run our own lives, what is the worst thing that could happen? So 
So don't answer, but just think about that. If I try to run my own life, I don't really consult God too much. I kind of do my own thing. What's the worst thing that can happen? I submit to you that it's success. That me succeeding at that plan that I want to do, the things that I, I want to go here, I want to do this, I want to have this, without consulting God, without praying, without considering for a moment what does God want, the worst thing that can happen is for me to get it, for me to succeed. Because with every step I take and every success, I'm less likely to look to Christ. I'm less likely to value and prize the gospel, to love Jesus for who he is. I'm more likely to be hardened in my selfishness, to be hardened into my resistance to him. Sometimes the best thing that can happen is failure when it comes from the merciful hand of God. When God allows my plans to crash and burn, it's because he's stepping in and he's merciful. Every time you and I see a rainbow, we should remember that God is merciful. That God promises to mankind, I will never allow your world to become so corrupt that it's unredeemable. But I think that when we see a rainbow, maybe we should think of some other promises too that God's given us. Like Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a promise that God's given to you as a child of God. It's given to me. And everything that he allows in our life, everything that happens is part of this good work that he's doing. And so I need to remember when the storms come, when the flood comes, when, the, when life falls apart, there is a promise. I'm allowing all these things, but I will never eliminate you. I will never let you get to the place where you cannot be salvaged. He will not allow us to walk our own way and disregard him for too long before he's going to step in. And he's going to say, let's change things up. Let's mix it up. God in his power and wisdom decides to halt the building project of Babel. And notice how he does it. Instantly, everyone speaks a different language. Just like that, they're all speaking different languages. Think about how confusing this work project would become. Those of you who are in the trades, that would be tough. That would be very difficult. This Tower of Babel story is one of my daughter's absolute favorite from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Presley loves this, and she, she just, every time we get to it, she is so excited. So I brought it with me. You want me to read a little bit to you? Right? I mean, you want me to read because it's a little mental break. Okay, here we go. So I wish you could see the pictures, but they're great, right? Here's what the, 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 the Jesus Storybook Bible version of the Babel uh, says, and it's, I'm picking up in the middle of the story. One morning, they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. Suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? And the other person thought they said, how ugly are you? It wasn't funny. You could be saying something nice like, such a lovely morning, and get a punch in the nose because they thought you said, hush up, you're boring. You couldn't even say pardon to check if you'd heard right because no one understood that word either. It wasn't easy to work together after that. As you can only imagine, people were always quarreling and fighting and getting in a dreadful muddle and becoming grumpier and grumpier until at last they were all too cross to keep on building and just had to stop. One thing is for sure, Project Skyscraper is off. 
there are more important things to worry about because you don't even know who speaks your language. And I, I try to picture this. It's, it's kind of crazy. Maybe it's like, you know, people standing up with signs like this is, I don't even know how they do it because they don't know the language yet. But like I speak like this and everyone congregates in the people that speak like them and then they disperse. Then they go out. The building doesn't matter anymore. It's just about survival. It's about going somewhere with the people that you understand. And God radically changes, really, the direction of society. And I I thought about this for a moment. Amazing. The fact that in one moment, just like that, God has now put the building blocks for every language in these different people. So, so, and I don't know how many there are. There's Germanic and and Slavic and, and Celtic and Romance languages and plenty others. And all of those are now in these various languages. And just like that, he has done it. God has made all languages. And by God's hand, the people leave Babel. They exit. They they do the very thing that they were so nervous about. They dispel. They spread out. They get out of there. And while we might fight God's plan for a while, his will will be done. God's plan will be done. It's going to happen. I find it amusing that these people had been working so hard on building this tower. They have been pouring their time and their energy and their money, and they're so proud of this. And in just one moment, with a word, God undoes it. Just like that. That's how powerful he is. God's plan will be done. That's why it's so important for you and for me to surrender our plans to God. To give everything we have to God to say, God, it's yours. My family, it's yours. My car, my house, everything, my career, it's all yours because in one moment, it can all come to nothing. Think about this. In one moment, everything, you pick it, whatever it is, it could just come undone. You could spend your energy and your time pursuing a career. And you could even advance through various positions and then one day you come in and they're downsizing and you have no job. You could build a house and you could have a house fire. You could be a health and fitness guru and you could get your body so fine-tuned and then in one moment you have a catastrophic accident and you're debilitated. If you have a girlfriend or boyfriend here today and it's going awesome, it can go down in flames. Children can even go to heaven before you do. See, everything we have, everything that we we, we love can in one moment be gone. And so it's so important for you and I to submit every dream, every hope, every person in our family, every possession that we have to the Lord and say, God, it's yours. I give it to you. I trust in your wisdom. I trust in your direction. Whatever you want to do with it, it's yours. If they would have done that in the Tower of Babel, if they would have said, God, where do you want us to go? And he would have shown them and then they knew where to set up camp and to build, they would not have been disobeying him. But they're not regarding what God wants. They're only thinking about what they want. When you do this, when you submit everything to God, when the bottom drops out, when the worst thing happens, you can still look to God and you can say, God, you're still good. I still trust in you. I know that you love me. A music artist whose music had an impact on me as a teenager, and uh, most of you won't know who this is, Keith Green, okay? <laughs> And he has this song, it's called Pledge My Head to Heaven. And in it, he, he basically says, I give everything to you, God, in the second verse. Well, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel, though our love each passing day just seems to grow. As I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. 
And the chorus, he says, I'm your child and I want to be in your family forever. I'm your child and I'm going to follow you no matter whatever the cost. I'm going to count all things lost. And this song was released in 1980. I was only two, so don't get a misconception about this. I wasn't listening as a teenager to him real time. But in 1980, this song was released. Two years later, Keith Green perished in a plane accident with two of his children and other people. And I've often wondered, what does his wife think when she hears this song? And I know she continued in ministry. She continued to love the Lord and serve the Lord. But, but what Keith was saying, he was saying, nothing is more important, God, than you. Take anything you want from my life. And then his wife had to live that out. God, whatever it is, I give it to you. I pledge it to you. Do with it as you wish. And whatever you bring into my life, I accept it from your hand. This is known in Scripture as submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Saying, Christ, you are Lord. You are in charge. I give it to you. Have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Not, not just trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Said, yeah, Jesus, I want you to save me from hell. I don't want to go there. I want to follow you, Jesus. But have you submitted your whole life to Christ and said, it's all yours, God. Whatever you do, whatever you bring into my life, I will follow you through the good, through the bad, through everything. It's one thing to submit to Jesus' plan when everything is going well. It's another thing when the floor drops out. But he is Lord and he knows what's best for me. He knows. He, he sees through time. He is not bound by time. And he can see what's coming down the pike in my life. And he knows what would happen if he didn't intervene and he didn't ruin that plan. At the Tower of Babel, it's kind of like God is saying, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And you have chosen the hard way. And sometimes God has to do that for us. He has to step in and do it the hard way. I'm guessing that at least a few, in the, a few of you in this room will face a very similar situation to the Tower of Babel in this next year, in these next couple of years, if you're not living it right now. And that is that you're going to put your time and your energy and your money into something only to have it come undone, to come to a screeching halt. And you might be tempted to look up at the heavens and say, God, what are you doing? I was even doing this for you. I really thought this is what you wanted. God, I was trying to have a family to honor you. And what did you do? Why did you let this happen? I want to suggest this morning to you that sometimes God allows our dreams to be crushed because he knows that those dreams would crush us. He lets things be taken from us. He lets things be crushed because he knows that down the road those things would would serve us poorly. They would actually crush us. He sees his child, his son or daughter, under the weight of that. He sees us not obeying him. And so instead he takes that away or he allows that thing to happen. We can't possibly look and see something that's good and imagine how down the road it's going to be an idol or how it's going to distract us from Jesus Christ. But God knows and God sees and God loves his children. So God mercifully alters our life and even sometimes ruins our plans. I close with this. We read this storyline of Scripture and uh, it doesn't stop here. Keep reading through the Bible and the rebellion of mankind does not have the final word. Praise the Lord that the rebellion of man, both at Babel, all the way up to the striving and the, 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 the rebellion against Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and they crucify him. The rebellion of man does not have the final word. No, God is doing something. And this is what I love about this. God is dismantling 
the Tower of Babel, and then he's using the very pieces of that plan for his own plan, for his own glory. What do I mean? Like, what am I talking about? Well, think about this for a second. The beauty of culture, different languages, different people groups, different foods, different clothes, different ways of living, all of that culture comes because of the Tower of Babel, because people were split up given new languages where they had to live together and and be apart from other groups and develop their own culture, their own customs. And isn't there a beauty in culture? There's a real beauty in different cultures. All of that is because God dismantled the plan of Babel and took that and made something awesome with it. Or you think of the doctrine of election that starts all the way back with Abraham. When God calls a people group from amongst all the nations, well, there was no all the nations until this. And so God makes all these different people groups and then he takes a people group of Israel and he chooses them and he loves them and he fights for them. And all of that happens because of what happens at Babel. So God is doing something amazing. And if you were to fast forward a couple thousand years to Acts 2, to Pentecost, you would see a great reversal of the Tower of Babel. Because in the Tower of Babel, you have people all with one language given a bunch of languages, and then spread out and then dispersed. But at Pentecost, Acts 2, you can read that later, we have all these people of different languages coming together in Jerusalem, and they're hearing the gospel preached. They're hearing the sermon of Peter, and they're hearing about Jesus Christ, and a crazy thing happens, they all hear in one language, even though they're all speaking different languages. So God reverses what happened at the Tower of Babel. And then, if you remember... The diaspora, where the the Jews are spread throughout the world, and they take the gospel into every part. And so God is doing something really neat here at the Tower of Babel. He's setting the world up for his plan that will, will come. And that's the thing. That's what God does in our life, too. Yes, God brings destruction sometimes into our life. Yes, sometimes it falls apart. I'll never forget the quote I heard years back. Um, and uh, it, it really stuck with me because less than a year later I would lose my little brother uh, who was only 23 when he died. And it's then that I remembered this quote. And he said this. He said, um, it was Jared Wilson, he said, a lot of people tell you that when God closes a window, he opens a door, right? He said, I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. He's like, sometimes God closes a window because he's going to bring the whole building down on top of you. And I sat there and said, well, that is like, pessimistic, (laughs) but it's so true. There's sometimes where the door closes and there's no open window and you're sitting there going, what what is going on, God? What are you doing? And in 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 our most difficult moments, we need to remember that God is sometimes dismantling things and he's making it get a whole lot worse before it gets better. But you have to remember, God in his wisdom is gonna take those pieces, those broken pieces, and he's gonna build it into something amazing. He is. He says that and he promises that in his word. I want to leave you with a picture, a picture from the Philadelphia Magic Gardens. And I doubt anyone's, anyone ever been to the Philadelphia Magic Gardens? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. It's a really neat thing off South Street in Philly. And I want you to have this picture in your mind. You have? Yes. Good job, Jeremy. It's a really neat place, okay? Last service is my wife. That was it. I want you to think about this picture as you leave because this artist, uh, forget his name, it's Isaiah something. He takes broken glass, he makes it into mosaics, and he 
plasters it all over the place, and it's quite intriguing when you go there in person. You see the light shining through bottles and through broken shards of glass, and even sometimes he takes glass and he breaks it in order to, to make stuff with it. And, and this is what God does. This is what God does. So right now you might be in this situation where you feel broken, you feel shattered, you feel like God is letting things fall apart. He's an artist. He's an artist that's better than this guy and cleaner than this guy's because he's got some art in there that's sketchy. <clears throat> okay? God is an artist and he is doing something with those broken pieces. So right now where you are, you've got to remember the Tower of Babel. You have to say, okay, it's all coming apart, but God is going to do something amazing. God is at work in me. He who started a work in me will continue it. He will not give up on me. And so have that image in your head of the broken glass made into artwork and say, this is what God's doing. I may never see it till heaven. I really may never see it, but I know that it's true because I know he's wise. He knows what's best and he loves me enough to ruin my plans.